Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello, Blue Murder Clubbers. It's your host, Carrie, here. And that lovely little feng tune there is a bit of a clue as to today's um, episode. So before we get on to that, I would like to introduce my fellow hostess. Lauren, hello. How are you? I'm good, thank you, Lauren. How are you? Yeah, not bad, thank you. Excellent. So what did you make of that theme tune? I'm very excited. Like, the ball was so aggressive, wasn't it? <laughs> In what? What are you aggressive? I was going to do it to you and I thought, no, shut up, shut up, shut up. <laughs> yeah, so today's case is about the bullseye murderer. Oh, Cooper. Yes, yeah. Mr. Cooper. John, Mr. Cooper. Johnny Cooper. And while I say while researching this, um, Minnie also do a model <laughs> called John Cooper. The Minnie Cooper. Yeah, and, yeah. He, and he drove me up the frigging wall. Like, <laughs> every time I put in John Cooper, I've got a load of Minnie's in my face. Oh, honestly, yeah. I know. I feel you. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, you had a good week? Yeah, not bad. It's been bloody bitter. Mm, it's uh, cold. I went and had a scavenge hunt last Tuesday. Best day of my life. And then, yeah, other than that, I've been all right. How about you? Yeah, well, I didn't go poncing um, mannequins like you did, but I, I have had not bad, not bad week. I've had, been a bit underweather, I had a bit of a cold, oh. but hasn't haven't we all at the moment? Yeah, so I'm not going to complain. I've got one coming on, and I blame yeah. it on being on the cold. You got the, the sexy phlegm. Yeah, smelly cat, smelly cat. <laughs> yeah. But do you want our very own blue murder mannequin? <laughs> I can live without a mannequin in my house. Okay. Thanks very much. All right, fair enough. I think it would give me the creeps. Yeah, it would. I think it's looking <laughs> in at you all the time. Told you my neighbour has been a kid in his garden, right? Yeah, that's not right, is it? No, it's crazy. Does it stand fuck. guard over his dungeon? Yeah, and yeah. he's got a flagpole, and I just think to myself... Oh, really? Mm. Do you know what? I do think people that have flagpoles are a little bit on the spectrum. Yes, I agree. <laughs> not to be too mean about it, but there's definitely something special about a person that puts a flagpole in their garden. I not think. a mannequin. Or a mannequin. It stands <laughs> over his pond. Maybe it's a deterrent for birds getting the fish. Yes, probably is, yes. Yeah. Probably puts off the herons. But it puts off me too. It scares yeah. the fuck out of me. I walk down and forget he's there. Go, oh, shit! <laughs> Jump out of my skin. That's terrifying, isn't it? It is. Yeah. Perhaps it puts off burglars as well. It Might be a good do. deterrent. Yeah, yeah. Joe, you know it's not? funny I should mention that word because that word crops up a lot in today's case. Burglar, yeah. Burglars, burglary. Yeah. And so yeah. does the word robbery. So that made me think... Like, this is a bit of a sex and city thing. Um, it got me thinking. <laughs> so, anyway, I was wondering, what's the difference, uh, if any, between a burglar and a robber, robbery? Mm. Do you want to know? Yes, please, because I, had, I was thinking this. I have got the answer. I wrote, I wrote it down. Oh, you're good. Um, earlier on, here's one. Right, here we are. <clears throat> burglary and robbery are two different crimes that are often used interchangeably. Burglary involves illegally entering a building in order to commit a crime while they're inside. Robbery is generally when someone takes something of value directly from another person by the use of force or fear. Robbery requires an attempt to steal, while burglary does not have to involve such an attempt. The key differences between robbery and burglary is that robbery involves threatening a person, while burglary involves entering a building with the intent to commit a crime. Well, they're asleep. Basically. So there you have it. Yeah, I think it's like non-confrontation. Oh my goodness, what's wrong with my voice? That non. Yes, your fault. Non-confrontational. Yeah. Um, stealing. Stealing. Versus confrontational. Well, I was going to say, what happens if you had theft and stealing in? 
What's what do you mean? What's theft? Because I had theft oh, burglary. Theft stealing, yeah. 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 So I think theft is taking things off of the property, am I right? Um, that's that's, a, that's a robbery, yeah. Mm. Yeah. Like if someone goes thieving, usually it's shoplifting, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, nicking. Nicking. Nicking, yeah. that's another one. Five finger discount. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> yeah, I, I could go on for this. That's a good one. I ain't had that for years, actually. Yeah. Five finger discount. Yeah, so yeah, they're like shoplifting uh, terms, really, aren't they? Yeah. I think. So yeah, there you go. Now you know something that know. you didn't know five minutes ago. <clears throat> so this week we mixed it up a bit, didn't we? I thought I'd do the early life. In one. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Are you going to gamble all your money for the speedboat? I want the speedboat. No, I want the speedboat. <laughs> I watched a documentary right about this case, mm. and there was uh, on the scene police footage of when they searched the geezer's house. Right, they obviously he lived on the coast. Yeah. This is a coastal crime. Mm-hmm. Guess what? He had parked out the front of his house. Speedboat. He had a fucking boat. At the yeah, front. he did. I'd love to say it was a speedboat, wasn't? Oh. But it was a boat nonetheless, you know. Oh, and some man. of the amusing people on YouTube would put a comment underneath. Nice to see that you've won the speedboat. <laughs> <laughs> I love seeing comments under certain. Some not comments all cases. are really funny. Genius. Mm, Pure yeah. out of genius. I know. Some people pick up on the most minute yeah. detail, like that one. Of oh, I didn't even. I, I saw it yeah. and I thought, oh, he's lucky. He's got a boat. I'd love to have a boat. But it didn't occur to me about the <laughs> fact that he'd been on full and he had a boat in his I front garden. It. it was so funny. I love it. So anyway, um, this is a bit of background on our perpetrator this week, um, John William Cooper. So he was born on the 3rd of September 1944 in a place called Milford Haven in Wales. He left school at 15 years old and he had various trades, um, eventually sort of settling to become a builder slash farm labourer. Um, in 1966, at the age of 22, he married his childhood sweetheart called Patricia and they'd known each other since they were 12. And the couple went on to have two children. Um, one of them was called Adrian and the girl was called Teresa. Um, John was described as an outgoing, cheerful enough fellow but was also a bit of a gambler. He began working at the Pembrokeshire Gulf Oil Refinery as a welder's mate in 1978. Only a year later, he was lucky enough to win £94,000 in a spot-the-ball competition and an Austin Princess car, which was which is worth £4,000 at the time. So um, I converted it into today's money and the combined um, prize fund was over half a million pounds that he won Jesus. that day. Yeah, and you know, I'll just explain a little bit about spot-the-ball to our listeners in case they're younger than me can't remember um but yeah spot the ball was like a little sporting competition where they'd they'd like freeze frame a football match where there was a couple of players looking like they were aiming to kick or head out a ball but they took the ball out of the picture and you had to put a, a like a mark where you thought the ball would be uh-huh. and he obviously guessed right because he won the, Bang the, on. the prize yeah it's it, like um bit like the nips. Foot, yeah a bit like um like my nan and granddad used to always do the the polls yeah. The football pool. So it's sort of gambling that everyone used to do before the National Lottery came around. Yeah, I'm with you. <clears throat> um, he generously gave £1,000 each to 10 family members and he went on holiday to America with Patricia. So I thought that was quite nice. Obviously, yeah. you, you, hear nothing, you hear nothing but shit about this guy, but he was very generous with his money, mm. which is nice. Um, he subsequently left his job at the factory and he went to work for a local farmer. However, he didn't invest his winnings very wisely and the funds quickly dried up through poor business investments and through his gambling habit. So, <clears throat> Cooper was a fisherman and a farmer who enjoyed the outdoors. He attempted to portray himself as a caring husband and father, but later on at his trial, investigators said that his brutality extended to his family. Gareth Rees, who was a detective on the case, described the abuse. He said he was a nasty individual, even in the family environment, he lived on a farm and he killed a pig with a hammer. And when his children were very small, they reared some chicks and he shot them with a shotgun in front of them. So it sounds like he just was a bit sadistic. Mm-hmm. Like he liked to see that, inflict yeah. cruelty and stuff on his kids psychologically and <clears throat> with physical punishment. Yeah. It was reported that Cooper abused his son severely, throwing him against the wall for minor offences. Um, Adrian changed his name to Andrew, actually, and, and he was on the documentary I watched, and he said that his dad used to like throw him around like he was made of rubber. Yeah. He described himself as a human ball, kind of like bouncing off the walls kind of thing. Um, and he said one day, age 11, he was walking he was walking through a field and he crossed paths with his dad, and his dad just threw him to the floor, pinned him down, 
forced the gun into his son's mouth. Like he was age 11 at this point. Yeah. And he said to him, you're a waste of space, that sort of thing. You're a waste of space. Nobody likes you. None of us want you in the family. And he pulled the trigger. But there was no cartridges in there. But, you know, Andrew didn't know that at the time. He thought, he he said he laid there and he said he felt himself just go at peace. He thought, I'm going to die now. And he just let himself go. And then he he felt the click of the trigger and realised that his dad was playing the most awful joke. So um, that's what sort of bloke this is. (laughs) Not very good. (coughs) No, that's awful. Absolutely awful. So Andrew eventually changed his name from Adrian. Um, His dad had given him the name because um, Adrian liked the Johnny Cash song, A Boy Named Sue, and he wanted him to have to fight because he had a girl's name. And uh, it's really funny, actually, because I never think of Adrian as being a girl's name. No, I don't. But that's not the first time I've heard this, because um, you know the actor Adrian Edmondson? Yeah. He, I read his biography a couple of months ago, and he refers to it all the way through that he's got a girl's name. And that he got teased at school for having a girl's name. Yeah, and then he said... It was bad enough, and then the Rocky film came out, and his wife's his wife's Adrian, isn't she? Yeah, that's true. <laughs> and he said the bullying got ten times worse when that film came out because there was always this woman who oh. everyone's called Adrian. So that's mad, yeah. Because yeah. Adrian, my my brother-in-law's name's Adrian. I yeah, didn't, the I've only Adrians I've ever met have been blokes. Yeah. So yeah, but perhaps it's more common in other places. Yeah, I don't know. That's true. But yeah, straight away it looks like from the off his dad wanted him to have a troubled setting life. Setting him up for fail, yeah. Yeah, setting him up for just getting shit all the time. Bastard. Um, by the time Andrew left home in 1982, he described his dad as violent, as a violent and aggressive man. And in 1983, in an attempt to maintain his newly acquired lifestyle, John Cooper began a career as a burglar. Um, he would have been absolutely terrifying. I think his son said he would seem like going out at night, carrying a sawn-off shotgun and wearing a balaclava. And he was described as a large and bulking man, so he would have been very intimidating. Mm. Um, I don't think he was particularly tall, but I suppose, I suppose he was pretty well built because he was worked on worked the Wired. land and things like that. Yeah, like Hench, mm, what we yeah. say nowadays. Yeah. <laughs> Hench, yeah. Hench. Judy Dench. <laughs> yeah. He's got that 70s, 80s stance about him as well, isn't he? A bit stoopy around the shoulders. Yeah, so he looks like a barrel. Yeah. He looks solid, like he was yeah. flattening you, you know. Like a darts player. He was a darts player, exactly. Hey. Yeah, he was. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's why it's on bullseye. <laughs> Sorry. I'll go over. <laughs> so, um, so, yeah, so, so uh, a couple of years into his new career as a house burglar, um, we're looking at the... So, yes, he on the 22nd of December 1985 at Scoviston Park, his first murder, he, he committed his first murders of siblings, um, killing... Miss Thomas, who at that age was 56, and her brother, Mr. Thomas, who at that age was 58. I've watched the original Crime Watch reconstruction Mm -hmm. of this. Did you see it? No, I didn't. It's brilliant. Oh, God, I wish they still did Crime Watch. I loved Crime Watch. It's brilliant. It's like you're watching the crime unfold. They get actors that look like and they use the same cars. It's really good. I mean, if you was in that area at that time it would definitely jog your memory no yeah. wonder it was so successful yeah <clears throat> so here, here's the crime watch reconstruction you've got to remember this reconstruction this whole program was made donkeys users mm-hmm. before they sold this crime mm-hmm. so they didn't know who they were talking about and they didn't know what angle it was coming from either so bear that all in mind plus it was like 1985 it was a different time it was different time. and it was acceptable <laughs> definitely <laughs> um Right, so they were described as shy and private people, but they were well known among the local community. And Richard Thomas was a regular face at the livestock auctions, described as a shrewd and respected buyer of cattle. Helen Thomas, his sister, was a devout Christian and she spent her life mainly caring for her elderly mother and she worked translating books into Braille. She sounds like a saint to me. Yeah. Absolute saint. Uh, Scoviston Park, uh, which was a mansion, had been in the Thomas family since the 1920s and the siblings had grown up there. Richard, dreaming of becoming a scientist, but when his father died, he felt obliged to go into farming and keeping the family business running. They had a huge estate comprising of over 600 acres and five farms, but their estate became run down due to Richard's stinginess. So, by all accounts, Richard was tighter than Duck's ass. Yeah. Yeah. Like, when they did the reconstruction, his car was like a proper old banger. You wouldn't think he was like a millionaire. Did he squeak when he walked? I think so. (laughs) Um, 
now during this crime watch reconstruction they dug a little bit into Richard's private life mm-hmm. like they're, they're siblings they're in their 50s and even them married so mm-hmm. they're a bit like okay what's the deal here so Richard is known to have enjoyed going to the cinema into town to watch X-rated films when they were on and he would often meet up with a fat bearded man on more than one occasion who remains a mystery they were appealing for this man to come forward his lover they thought he was his lover mm. yeah and I don't know whether the X-rated films are like you know, like back in the day, I think in Soho, like gay men used to go there because it was a bit like yeah, you, you can openly go to gay places. Bow, you? So, go wow, wow. Yeah, that's yeah. what I'm trying. That's exactly what I was trying to put. Into yeah, words. thank you. Very, very succinct. succinct. Um, on the Sunday before Christmas, the 22nd of December, Richard was supervising some loggers on the estate while Helen attended church about a mile away, which was her usual routine, and friends thought she seemed her usual self on that day, so there was no indication there was anything mm-hmm. amiss. They were known to always have their lunch at 12.30, like on the dot, precisely wow. 12.30. I love things like that. Yeah. People are much more sort of like easy going nowadays. Back then everything was rigid. It was like, oh. we have our tea at this time, we have our lunch at this time. The and... old girl I used to look after, they had their dinner mm. at lunchtime, but yes. it was at two o'clock oh, on the dot. Yeah. Even when she got, like when Every I was Every single day, two o'clock the on the dot. Yeah. And then she'd have a sandwich at dinner time. Yeah. Because she didn't want to eat too heavy. Yeah. For, yeah. What, like at a certain time? Yeah, oh, like bang, bang on, on the dot. Yeah, yeah, it was bang on, I think, about 6, 6.30. Yeah. Bang, like, bang on the dot. Yeah. Yeah. It's cool, isn't it? Yeah. But that's that's how the um, serial killers find you, you see. Yeah. You fall into a trap of getting into routine. such a routine and they will, they'll be, they'll stalk you and they'll pick up on your yeah. routines and your habits and you'll wish that you mixed it up a bit. Well, well they wouldn't get it to me because I'm here, there and fucking everywhere. Right? <laughs> yes, Good luck. Me too. <laughs> So they're always known to have their lunch at 12.30 precisely and then the last sighting of Richard came at 1.30 when he was seen driving on the Century Cross roundabout heading in the direction of Nayland, which was about three miles away. Now, on previous occasions, not this occasion, but on previous occasions, his car had been parked at the same place, down the same road. He would then get into, take, get out of his car, get into a Land Rover, which had obviously he prearranged to meet, mm-hmm. Which pulled up shortly after and dropped and drove off with a man thought to be his lover, and forensics show that he had had sex with another man the afternoon that he died. Ah, uh, dogging. No, they're not dogging. No. No, dogging is where you have sex in public, isn't it? And people watch you. They flash might their be lights. in the Range Rover. <laughs> you don't know. You can't do dogging in daylight though. You have to flash your lights. Uh, and this is like one o'clock. Okay. One thirty. Okay, I'll let him off. But they might have been dogging later. Later. I mean, the, the nights you are in and the 22nd yeah, of December. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, uh, yes, so he, he forensics showed that he had had sex with another man the afternoon that he died. Put a pin in that. Right. Because we'll come back to that. Okay. Poor closeted Richard. I did feel for him. He was very uptight, very closeted. Very tight. Very tight. <laughs> they would usually be gone for around two hours although there were no eyewitnesses to say that this actually happened on the 22nd of December Mm -hmm. on the last day the last confirmed sighting of Helen was at 3.30 when she left one of the farms so she'd been you know see one of the tenants Mm -hmm. she drove straight home and she would have been home by 3.45 at 9pm Helen took a phone call from one of her tenants Mr Nicholas who was told by Helen that Richard wasn't in but he wouldn't be very much longer she had sounded normal to the caller at the time so it's not thought that she was you know at gunpoint at that point mm-hmm. and that there was, that was the last time anyone had any contact with her as within the hour she was dead police went on the record on crime watch um and they were insistent that on the fat man in the cinema come forward as well as any of richard's other gay friends and they finished off with a saying that there was a twenty-five thousand pound reward which nowadays would be ninety-three thousand pounds for any information jesus so really taking it seriously no one came forward <coughs> Um, the lover I'm not sure if anyone came forward there wasn't really like a follow up about it this this was just the thing that went out at the mm-hmm. time I don't know even if people did come forward it didn't crack the case because yeah. you know it remained unsolved yeah. didn't it until the millennium yeah um, <clears throat> on a wet and windy Sunday evening three days before Christmas in 1985 when millions of TV watchers tuned into Harry Seacombe's Highway an isolated mansion in West Wales started to burn as the smoke filled the night air above the three-storey Scoviston Manor at Staten near Milford Haven, it was described as a lonely country mansion. The home of millionaire farmer Richard Thomas, 58, was dying a slow, painful death from gunshot wounds to the stomach. 
His spinster sister, Helen, age 56, was already dead from a gunshot blast delivered at point-blank range to her head. The murderer sprinkled paraffin around the stately home before applying a match and making off into the night. Among the first to notice the smoke was Anna McEwen, an insurance broker who was staying with her sister-in-law at uh, sister-in-law at Landstadwell. She and her sister-in-law were driving past the manor house and entered its long drive to investigate. Finding flames coming from the roof, they furiously knocked at the door, but then drove, um, because obviously they didn't have mobile phones in 1985, to the Windsor Club nearby where their husbands were, and they telephoned the emergency services from the club. The Duffhead Fire service arrived and used the manor house's ornamental pond as a water source and began pouring jets of water on the raging blaze. Inside, Helen Thomas had been bound and gagged before being shot in the head at point-blank range. She was placed on a bed on the first floor and when the fire raged, her body fell through to the ground floor. Jesus. Yeah, it must have just smashed through the floor, like the ceiling above. Um, Richard Thomas had a fatal gunshot wound to the the right lower abdomen fired at point-blank range. The muzzle of the gun held tightly against the body. But initially, in an outhouse, he had also been hit to the left side of the face by what was described as a raking shot, but then dragged inside by his feet to receive the second fatal shot to the stomach. Oh, it's just don't bear thinking about it, is it? No. It's terrifying. You can drive home and you think you're safe, yeah. and then that happens in your drive. Although police initially suspected a possible squabble between the two, this reminded me a little bit about White House Farm, actually. Isolated farm, mm-hmm, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so at first they thought murder-suicide. It quickly became evident a third party was responsible because of all the petrol and stuff where yeah. he tried to cover his tracks. Another theory at the time is that Mr Thomas's largely hidden homosexuality may have played a part. The man who led the inquiry at the time, Detective Chief in- Superintendent David Davies, was convinced Mr Thomas could have tried to resist an intruder, saying... That was the type of person that he was. And I would agree. I think Mr. Thomas doesn't seem like a shrinking violet. I think yeah. he would definitely like front out mm-hmm. someone trying to burglar him. Almost certainly, Mr. Thomas had interrupted a burglary and finding the intruder armed, had sought refuge in the outhouse. Mr. Thomas's body was discovered by a divisional fire officer, Mike George, who had kicked down the door of the burning mansion after being given the message, occupants unaccounted for. He's a brave man, isn't he? Yeah. He said the fire was spreading rapidly and burning objects were falling from the ceiling. Mr Thomas's badly burned body was found on a first floor landing, bundles of paper having been placed underneath and around the body. So he's put kindling on the yeah, bodies fuck. and then put paraffin on there. Mrs Thomas's body was not discovered until hours later when the fire had died down. It had been burnt beyond recognition. The Thomas's family, together with police, put up a substantial reward for information about the killer and witnesses reported seeing a man described by police as being connected with the crime. He was never traced, and people were warned he was dangerous and should not be approached. So they did They did this in the reconstruction. Somebody mm-hmm. drove past it around about 10 o'clock and saw a man by the drive. Um, but this person obviously never came forward, so it might have been him or it might not have been. You yeah. just don't know. No. Um, the 100-strong murder squad was assembled in a bid to catch the killer, though this was reduced over the years to 13. and eventually the file was effectively closed for years as no new evidence emerged. And though it was always remained officially open, it would be the advent of advances of fibre analysis research which was to throw new light on the shocking Scoverston Manor double murders. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, 
they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Um, so, I think during the police investigation, he did come up on their radar, mm-hmm. but his family alibied him. So they ruled him out, Yeah, um, Mr. Cooper. Yeah, and we see this often in cases, don't we, Laura? And oh. you're just like, why do people do I it? Know. You know, um, I, I know everyone's got a different reason. I should imagine his wife was terrified of him and yeah. was probably under duress, but still, yeah, still, piss, yeah, yeah, well, it I does agree. a bit, absolutely. Right, so that leads us up to May 1899. <laughs> he does appear on Bullseye. So yeah, that brings us to there's a market manager named Peter Dixon. He was 51. He liked running while his wife, Gwinda, 52, was a secretary for her local social services department in Whitney, Oxfordshire. Whitney's a lovely part of the world. Is it? It's in, the, Cot- it's in the Cotswolds. <gasps> Let's go. It's beautiful. And she liked to play badminton. The couple had lived in the Moorlands Road since the house was built in the 1970s and was good friends with neighbours. One neighbour said that they were a very nice couple and very friendly. Peter would always be on hand to help, especially when it involved cars. So he liked to get a bit handsy. They were having a wonderful camping holiday in Holston Park, where they would hike, rest and enjoy each other's company. They were on the Pembrokeshire Coastal Path in Little Haven. The couple had camped here for 15 years previous. They knew the local area, the local people and used local facilities and pubs. Then on June 29th, 1989, they had just packed up on their last day of the staycation and decided to go on one more last hike before heading home. They didn't know what was waiting for them. They found to return home to Whitney and after four days of waiting, their son, 22-year-old Tim Dixon, reported them missing to the local police. The police started a search for them and Tim joined the hunt. So we know that the couple were intercepted by Cooper. He had forced their couple to the very edge of the cliff, tied them up and demanded their bank cards and PIN number. After six days of being missing, the couple were found in the undergrowth near the cliff's path. Gwenda was shot twice at close range and sexually assaulted, with her clothes being removed. Peter had also been shot, but he was fully clothed and his body was found nearby, very close to the cliff's edge. The discovery sent shockwaves through the Pembrokeshire and Dixon's hometown of Whitney, where the couple were well known by the community. There was an eyewitness who saw a man in the area around the time of the murders. They contacted the police, and the police made a sketch. Their murder would remain a cold case until 2009. Do you know why they went for that last walk? No. Did you get that? It's such. It's just one of them bloody, you know, like yeah. you always say, final destination. It had been raining the night before. Mm-hmm. So there was a couple, again, that documentary I watched, it was really good. They had loads of people there that was eyewitnesses and whatnot. The couple that had the pitch next to them, they were packing up to go home and mm-hmm. they uh, was chatting to, um, was it Peter and Gwen? Yeah. And... Peter and Gwen said, "Oh, we're we're going home in a couple of hours. We're just gonna we're just um gonna wait for the tent to dry to out." To dry out, yes. Sorry, did not. So yeah. that was it. If that if it hadn't have rained that night, they wouldn't have needed to wait for that tent to dry, and they would have just gone home, and been <sighs> safe. It's crazy. It's madness. It's madness. Like, it's like fate was gonna draw those three people yeah. together down that path. Really awful. Absolutely, they'd been there fifteen years. They knew the area. They knew. Mm, they loved it there, loved didn't it. they? Yeah, it does look gorgeous. Yeah, oh, it's yeah. stunning, absolutely stunning. Mm, beautiful, but obviously it's, it must rain all the time. Yeah, because of the, we've seen Wales is lovely though. Yeah. It is beautiful. Yeah, it is nice, isn't it? They've mm-hmm. got some beautiful coastlines, beaches. Can I just and say, stuff. do you know how lucky you are that I ain't um, said old Doris yet? Oh yeah, <laughs> Barry's Island. Yeah, and I'm sure the neighbour was called Gwyn or the mum. One of them was called Gwen. Gwen, uh, Gwen is Gwen. Um, Stacey's mum, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, Gwen the widow. Yeah, John an omelet. <laughs> yeah, John omelet. <laughs> Don't mention the fishing trip. No. Though. So yeah, that's um them up to them. Yeah. Well, I I did uh, notice on that in on that. Oh, again, I 
hate banging on about it, but that documentary that I watched. <laughs> <laughs> um, John Cooper sold Peter Dixon's wedding ring. Yeah. So Peter Dixon's wedding ring was missing, wasn't it? Missing, yeah. And yeah. Um, he said that it was his own wedding ring. He said it was his, yeah. And his family backed him up again. Bastard. Mm. But you'd think they'd be able to tell whose wedding ring it was, wouldn't you? Size for that. Did it have Gwyn in it? Etched. <laughs> a lot of wedding rings do, actually. They they do. I know you're joking, but they do, yeah. don't they? They have personalised things etched And years inside. ago, they did. They did <clears throat> have stuff like that. <clears throat> yeah, definitely. I forgot about that. Might be that. To be so, honest, this case is so full of holes. Yeah, it's like Swiss cheese, <clears throat> isn't it? But then when you get to the, the reopening, the cold case, there was between one and a half and two million pieces of paper mm. to sift through. So mm-hmm. obviously we're not going to have all, no. all of that information. No, definitely not. There probably was a I told whole, you, like, I went down such a rabbit hole with the DNA, mm. just the DNA. So can you imagine what other stuff there mm. was? But if you can prove something tangible like a wedding ring, mm-hmm. you don't need to even look at DNA. No, that's true. It's like the physical evidence don't seem to have really amounted to much in no, this investigation it's weird isn't it no that is 100% true I get that mm. yeah I'm just thinking like people I know like for instance my sister if somebody if she lost her wedding ring and someone said is this it I would mm-hmm. recognise it yeah but most people's I probably wouldn't I no if it's a, like a plain gold band then yeah. definitely not do you even wear a wedding ring no. no you don't I was thinking I don't know what yours looks like but you don't wear one oh yeah the like 50 pence piece shape one yeah Long story, basically, and then Tom bought me a new one, and I've just never. I've got little stubby fingers, and my fingers <laughs> don't shut with a ring, so I don't really wear them unless yeah. I go out. Oh, right, yeah. So I probably have seen it, I just haven't noticed it when we've yeah, been out. Yeah, probably. Mine is just from um, Warren James because my wedding ring gives me a rash. See? But you can't really go around without a wedding ring on because then people think, like, I'm not saying I'm hot stuff, but I can get chatted up by some, like, Caring the community people and that sometimes if I got my wedding <laughs> ring on, so I've got my little ten quid wedding ring. There you go, that ten quid ring. Yeah, it does a job. Yeah, it's a, it just lets people know that you're off the market, yeah. doesn't it? Yeah. So yeah, <laughs> wedding ring. Yeah. Digressions there, <laughs> but no, it's a very personal thing. You'd it think is. that their kids would recognise that. They'd be like, oh yeah, that's Dad's wedding mm-hmm. ring. Mm-hmm. I mean, plus you know, the corpse is missing a wedding ring. A wedding ring turns up being sold. By one of your suspects. Yeah, dodgy as fuck. It's mad, isn't it, yeah. when you look at it that way? But yeah. who knows? Who knows? They, they did they did um, investigate 6,000 suspects during this mm-hmm. case. So in hindsight, it's easy to say that. Yeah. He was a suspect at the time as well. They had interviewed him and they had mm-hmm. put put like him in, like, I don't know, the top 100, maybe. <laughs> oh, out of the 6,000, yeah, in the, the top 100. Yeah, yeah. They, um, they had a feeling about him. Yeah. Well, yeah, because he's known... Well, yeah, I mean, they did they, they did check his alibi, mm-hmm. so... Mm-hmm. So now, John Cooper has got away with two double murders and multiple burglaries. Um, in 1996, five local teenagers are walking through the fields near Milford Haven when they're confronted by Cooper brandishing a shotgun. Um, he was wearing a balaclava as well, so they couldn't see his face. They would have been completely terrified and were com- totally compliant when he told them not to move while he dragged away one of the 16-year-old girls by her hair and proceeded to rape her. He then sexually assaulted her 15-year-old friend. Then he robbed the group and fired one warning shot into the air as he left, leaving the group of teenagers traumatised. Um, yeah, again, I mean, if he raped this girl, surely they'd have DNA, mm-hmm. wouldn't they? Yeah. But they, that rape DNA didn't come into the... Into the case or anything? Was is it? there such a place as like a rape centre or anything like well, that? It's only ninety six, ain't that? Long oh ago? yeah, no, that's true. Yeah, it's not like back in the dark yeah, ages. I'm, well, I'm even thinking in the eighties yeah. did they have it? That's where yeah. my head was. Ninety six, yeah. they definitely yeah, would have had true. it. I think DNA was around then. Yeah. So it's weird, unless he used a condom, maybe. But you'd think if somebody raped somebody, they'd be covered in there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But they, they, I don't know. Like I say, I don't know. Bless <laughs> 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 you. Um, in 1998, he committed another armed burglary. Mm-hmm. Um, he robbed a teacher called Sheila Clark. He tied her up. She struggled free and managed to reach her panic alarm button and he fled. Sheila was able to identify Cooper and he was finally apprehended and was convicted on the 10th of December 1998. He was sentenced to 16 years for armed robbery and 30 burglaries, although they were they found evidence that linked him to 90 burglaries. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's mad, isn't it? Absolutely. Like that was his job, just going out burgling. 
Yeah. Crazy. So um, Madness. So, yeah, finally, he's under lock and key. <sighs> For now. They so, found yeah. 500 keys in the cesspit yeah, of his it's house. It's a joke, isn't it? Some of which fitted the locks of the houses that had been burgled. Mm-hmm. So not only was he burgling the houses, he's stealing their keys. That's really creepy, isn't it? Yeah. And buried, it's madness. And buried under his duck run, <laughs> police found another shotgun. Yes, I see that. I've got duck run and cash shed in this. And I thought, well, there's quite a few <laughs> things that I have no clue no, on. But I've heard of a cash shed, but not a duck. A duck yeah. run, it's probably like a chicken coop, but for ducks, isn't yeah. it, I suppose. But it's for ducks to run. Ducks to run around in here. Yeah. <laughs> so as you were saying, back in 98, he was still funding his unattainable lifestyle by doing the crimes, the robberies or burglaries mm. or whatever was the thing. Yep. So, just after that, when he got arrested, when he was arrested, the police got a warrant to search his house. And what they find there is a shotgun with a handle, their handle hand-painted, a balaclava, gloves, and they found these items in the hedgerow that was several yards away from Cooper's home. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, a bit suspect, isn't it? So, the police also found silverware and jewellery keys obviously you've mentioned that belong to some of the burglaries robberies now i don't yeah. know what one Sorry. it is but yeah one um, of them yeah it would link link him to linking the, them to that precisely God, he's like a one-man crime spree isn't he? one-man bandit <laughs> so the so john cooper was arrested and sentenced to 14 years for 31 counts as you said a violent armed robbery and burglary cooper denies that the evidence gathered was his the police kept hold of all the evidence that they found. He was then released from prison in January 19, uh, 2009. He still believes that he's untouchable. However, there is still a cold case team on the double murders. I read when I wrote this double-double murders because it is a double-double murder. Yeah, it's two doubles. Yeah. Um, in Pembrokeshire in the uh, late 80s. It's now May 2009 and huge advances in DNA matching matching is making headway forensic science is equipping the police with better tools which to detect and solve unsolvable cases that are now termed as cold cases in particular science has been able to operate a micro on a micro level so this is where i went down my rabbit hole i'm so sorry if it gets boring do a yawn and i'll turn off (laughs) don't make it boring then (laughs) (laughs) So the cold case team surrounding this case decided to test the DNA of the prime suspect, which was John Cooper. Police also had the evidence they held on from the 1998 trial to use that for forensic science had caught up. It was the balaclava John had used in the robbery that he claimed wasn't his. It had hair from Cooper on it. And it was matched through DNA testing. So they could say, yeah, it is, John, because it's got your hair in it. Mm. Your moustache hair or your eyebrow hair or your red hair. It's got your hair in it. They also found DNA from victim Peter Dixon, taken from the paint flakes of the hand-painted barrel of the shotgun used in the attack. The chances of this not being Peter Dixon was one billion to one. They got a full profile of it, didn't they? Mm-hmm. Mm. A pair of shorts taken from Cooper in 1998, why do I want to say 88 all the time, I'm so sorry, were found to contain blood flake with contains of the DNA profile of both of the Dixons. The shorts belonged to Gwinda Dixon. Cooper had suggested that the evidence that had been stored too close together and they, they had been contaminated. That was his argument. Yeah. So when they rearrested him, that was his argument. You've stored it all together and they've all got contaminated and they're, they're not mine. I had nothing to do with it. They also found a sandy blue fibre on Richard Thomas's socks. Then they found similar type fibres on the shorts. Tiny fibres from the blue gloves worn by Cooper were also found. The sock, which was the only place of uh, part of Mr Thomas's clothing to survive the blaze, was found... <laughs> in the 1998 hedgerow with the other evidence. Yeah, so maybe it's making no sense there. Uh, yeah, Mr Thomas died in 1989 and then nine years later his sock was found in the hedgerow outside mm. of the house. So are they saying that John Cooper kept these All his trophies, trophies yeah. and then when when he felt that it was getting too hot he chucked them in the hedgerow? I think so, yeah. He's Why chucked them he just out. them? Maybe he didn't have time. Maybe he heard them all coming in and just thought, fuck, chuck it out the window. 
and they've all just landed. You don't know, do you? Yeah, you, that must be what happened. Yeah. He, he, he probably himself. didn't want to... He probably I didn't think, want to burn them, so he left it too late yeah. to actually dispose of them properly. I think that's what's... And I think, like, it's all coming on top of him, and I think he thinks that if they haven't caught him on his person... Yeah, they can't prove they it. They can't prove it. Mm-hmm. So he's chucked it over. Just chucked it in the bush. Yeah. That's what I think's happened. Yeah, I think you're right. In that big old bush. So, um, where am I? Sorry. So fibres of the same gloves that were found on the shorts and on the socks were also discovered on the shotgun along with the blood flakes. So they've all been, that's how they've tied all the three crimes together. Then retired Chief Superintendent Steele Wilkins was contacted by ITV presenter Jonathan Hill who had uncovered footage of Cooper appearing on the game show Bullseye. Ba-dum-boom! The pair was stunned by what they saw. The first shocking moment when Cooper revealed that he had a fairly unusual hobby. When asked what it was, he replied, Oh yes, scuba diving off the coastline, which police would later use to put him at the scene of the murders of the Dixons. So he knew he had such knowledge of Pembrokeshire... That area, the coastline. Mm. So they was like, right. He goes on to say, we've got deep water where you can swim over the mountains and all sorts of things, revealing the knowledge of the area where the Dixons were murdered a month later. Literally, he appeared on Bullseye a month later, the Dixons are dead. And he's sitting there right cockily, have you seen it? Yeah. And he's basically describing the area where the murders happened. But he hadn't murdered him at that point. No, no, no. But they, so they knew he had been like he's got good knowledge of that area. Mm. The police also noticed Cooper's physical appearance also matched the police sketch of the murderer. Remember the TV footage was one month before the murder. So I've just said that. I'm so sorry. So the police did a side by side comparison, and we'll put it up on our socials because I've got it. And the results are uncanny. They even have the same stance, feature and hair. Steve's had said, In my 30 years of service, I have seen many artists' impressions and profile efforts. But I have never seen one as close as this. Cooper was arrested again in May 2009, just three and a bit months from being released. He was convicted on the 26th of May 2011 for the double murders and sexual assaults. Prosecuting barrister Gerald Ellis said that Cooper was a level of evil he hadn't come across before. There was a cold control of evil that I saw in Cooper that I didn't think I'd seen in anyone else I've been involved with. Gerald quizzed Cooper in the dock and Cooper tried to paint a picture of himself as a caring husband and father. Gerald had to get Cooper to slip up and say that he was lying on his original statement that the balaclava was actually his. Cooper's mask finally slipped away and he was getting quite angry. So that caring father act and all that just slipped away and then the jury actually see him and his true colours. He was sentenced to four life sentences without the possibility of parole. Presenting judge John Griffin Williams said the murderers were of such evil wickedness that the mandatory sentence of life will mean just that. So, in 2012, Cooper's first appeal was rejected. Now, I'm going to go back in time again. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. So there's possible other victims. Mm. So these possible other victims, there's Flo Evans. So in May 2011, the police were considering reopening of an inquiry to the unexplained death of 72-year-old widow Flo Evans in 1989. Days before her murder, she had mentioned to a friend that she couldn't find her keys and that items were missing from her home, like money and a shotgun. She was known to Cooper and his wife, Pat. They would visit her regularly and Cooper would help around the house as a handyman. She lived close by to Cooper and two miles from the... I can't pronounce that. Scoverston Park. Thank you, Scoverston Park, <laughs> the site of the murders of Richard and Helen Thomas. Her house was the centre of the area that Cooper did always robberies in. She died soon after the Dixons. Flo was found fully clothed in a half-run bath at a cottage. He never locked the door, but she, sorry, never locked the door, but the door was found locked. She was unexpectedly mentioned by Cooper in his trial and was used as a witness, so he said that he was with her at the house when the Dixon's murders took place. Mm. And she said to her neighbours, didn't she, literally months before my keys gone missing. Yeah. So how did the door get end up locked? Because she couldn't lock the doors. The police was already aware of her suspicious death. Flo's family had long suspected Cooper of the murder. They said she never took baths as she didn't have the hot water. Uh, she d- could never have took the bath because she didn't have water at the time of her death as the kitchen fire hadn't been lit. So the kitchen fire heated up the water. Where if that hadn't been lit, you're not going to run yourself a cold bath, especially at 72 years old. Mm. The police at the time of her death recorded it as an accidental death and in 2011, the police state that Flo was more than likely the fifth victim of Cooper. He regularly burgled the homes of people he knew and he would react violently if disturbed. And he was at her house the day she died. She He was spotted by um, neighbours. Mm. So that makes sense to me. And with the other brother and sister... I think he was caught upon and he's acted out about being caught and murdered them rather than him going there to murder them. Mm. The other couple I'm not sure of, my couple, the Dixons, Mm. but, yeah, that seems to me he's been caught taking the piss. So then that leaves us on to Harry and Meghan. (laughs) Twos. Sussex. Sussex, (laughs) yeah. And it's Wells, sorry. The most oh. notorious, uns- oh, Wells's most notorious unsolved murders, this has been called. So Harry was 64 and Megan was 67. They lived an uneventful life. Harry was well known in the community through his garden market business, although recently retired. They had one child, a daughter called Cheryl. Harry's shotgun went missing a year before the murders. So again, same with Flo, the shotgun's gone missing. You know, mm. the one I've just spoke about. So on the morning of the 26th of July, 1993, the couple left the farm to collect their pensions and went shopping at Tesco's and arrived home at 11am. The couple was expecting company. Their best china was laid out and lunch was in the stove waiting to be eaten. And around 1.30pm, shots were heard by neighbours. But the sh- they didn't panic the neighbours because he, Harry used to go out regular and shoot. So they they just thought he was shooting, I don't know what they shoot in the farm, something. Mm-hmm. So what turned out to happen, they shoot something, something somewhere. So the couple were shot at close range in their remote farmhouse in 93. They had been shot in the head and was dumped in the cow shed and then covered in with a carpet. The police investigating to see if they matched Cooper's MO. The similarities were in that they were shot in the close range and that they were there was an attempt to conceal their bodies. So both, I think, one was shot in the head and that he tried to conceal them. 
Flo was shot in the head. Why are they not just checking the ballistics? I don't know. I know, I know, I know that is your contempt well, it's of obvious, this case. Isn't it? I know, I know. I know, it sounds like he had, I think he had two shotguns. Yeah. So why don't they just test the Well, he's nicked flows, he's nicked stairs. Yeah. So he's got, more, yeah, he at least two. two. Yeah. The weapon used was a shotgun. Jonathan Jones, the daughter of the boyfriend, the daughter's boyfriend was initially convicted of the murderers in 95. They said he had killed them for their life insurance money. Jones' conviction was squashed a year later. So, yeah, it's a, but it's very similar, isn't it? The MO's really quite similar. Yeah. And then this leaves the last one I've got. Were they robbed then, that couple? I don't think so. No, not robbed. It's not the same MO, though, is it? Well, maybe he, just... he wanted to rob them yeah. and he's disturbed them. They've disturbed him. Yeah. And uh, I don't know. Like, Flo, like, it looked like they was waiting to have lunch with someone. Mm-hmm. He might have known them and... They were doing him lunch, I don't know. So this leaves Griff and Patty's to- uh, Thomas. This reminds me of your one. So in December 1976, though, this is going back way before, mm. there was a double murder of brother and sister Griff and Patty Thomas in a farmhouse in Pembrokeshire. It looks suspiciously like Cooper's. At the time, the police thought that Griff must have had an argument with Patty and hit her over the head with a blunt object, then set himself on fire. Bloody hell. Yeah, like you would. The pair had never married and continued to live at the family home after the death of their father. The farm had earned them a good living, but they kept their purse strings tight. Same as Jean. <laughs> In recent times, the police say it was more than likely that Thomas's was a victim of a botched robbery. The cash box had been emptied, the brewer had been broken into and the back door was unlocked. Police say it's highly unlikely that serial killers start killing in their 40s and would more than likely have been had previous to the the one that we think's the first. Yeah, 1985. Yeah. Over many years there have been public campaigns to reopen this case. The police say that they will keep an open mind and look into it. In April 2022, a vigil for Griff and Patty drew at least 50 people to their graveyard in their memory. So there's still quite a public outcry, I think, to solve this one. Yeah. So that brings me to where we are now, really. 78-year-old Cooper, in April last year, 2023, applied to the Criminal Cases Review Commission to assess potential miscarriage of justice. He's always denied any involvement in all counts and all cases. The Criminal Case Review Commission will only consider cases if there's new evidence, not known of the time of the trial or new scientific development. So I'm going to call them the CCRC from there. So if the CCRC backs the new application, the case can be sent on for appeal and we're still waiting on the outcome of this. Blimey. So we don't know if he's won, but his first appeal in 2012, he lost. Yeah. So he's appealing again, but he's never admitted it. No. Never admitted it. Yeah, it's a funny one, isn't it? So tell me what you've got for me. Right, okay. So I've got, I found a conspiracy theory about about the Thomases. I love it. So this is good, actually. I quite, I quite like this because I'm not. I think most conspiracies are just fucking stupid, but yeah. this one's quite good. This makes a lot of sense to me. Oh, I like it. <clears throat> and plus, I think, from what I can see, the evidence they've done him on is pretty flimsy. Mm-hmm. There's like all the fibres and the sock in the hedge from like 10 years ago. It just, it just sounds a bit in far-fetched. In Harry's world, words, where's yeah. the fucking ballistics? Where's the ballistics? Where are they? It'd be easy to link him if they, you know, just... Do the ballistics testing? On Do you the think they've the... got any of the residue left or that? Maybe that's not ballistics, though, is it? Ballistics is the mark that the gun makes on the bullet as it fires mm. it, and there's a unique pattern to each one. And they've got the shotgun, haven't they? Yeah, they've got the shotguns. They, I think they found two: <gasps> one under the duck one and the other one. So that's flow and yeah. the other lot. Well, they've got they've proved it by the drop of blood under the, the paint. Yeah. Oh, on the handgun. Yeah. yeah. Sorry. So they shotgun. think that gun mm-hmm. killed the Dixons mm-hmm. based on that bit of blood underneath the paint mm-hmm. why don't they just run a fucking ballistics report on the bullets that is in that they we would have recovered from the dead couple mm-hmm. and they've gone 
Yeah. That prove it without having to faff around with finding bits of blood under pieces. I don't yeah. know, really, why they haven't done it. It just I jumped out at me. I've literally put three points. One, <laughs> where's the ballistics? What was the other point? Two, on? where is the ballistics? <laughs> three, where's the ballistics? <laughs> oh, um, how did they get a conviction for the Thomases and for the teenagers? Like, how did they... I think the teenagers, again, it was all just fibres, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. I didn't they... I don't know. Go on, carry on, sorry. Yeah. I mean, I know this, they've said they found a sock yeah. from Mr Thomas in the hedgerow outside the house. But any, surely any defence lawyer would get him off on that. Yeah, they, I think the, they found fibres of the gloves, the yeah. sock, and tank the shorts. The balaclava as well, And the balaclava. Yeah. But he tied each case to Cooper. Yeah. So maybe not together but I don't know I yeah. don't understand I think maybe you're right but I do think it seems a bit a little bit on the flimsy side but they yeah, could be oh, a bit more solid 100%. and the teenagers as well it's just like I don't know really and then my third point was was that mullet a crime even back in the 80s <laughs> it was acceptable but I know I've got a mullet but it's not like fucking that and his mate his partner who's on Bullseye mm-hmm. had like a Lego mullet, didn't he? <laughs> yeah, so you could click yeah. on and off. Yeah, John Cooper had the curly yeah. perm mullet and, and his mate had the Lego That's mullet. That's me and you. I'll have the curls, you can I'll have the Lego. I'll have the Lego. Yeah, let's do it. Yeah, it was um, flipping unbelievable. We'll put some pictures up anyway when we drop this episode. Um, right, so here's the conspiracy that I found about the Thomases. So, about the brother and sister. Mm-hmm. On December the 23rd, 1985, millionaire landowners Richard and Helen Thomas were brutally shot and killed in their manor home by John William Cooper, Mm -hmm. who burned the manor down. Diffid Powell's police's first suspicion was the crime was a murder-suicide between the siblings following an argument over money. A similar conclusion was also jumped to nine years previously when Griff and Patty Thomas were found dead in their farmhouse in Langolman. It wasn't until... The bodies of Helen and Richard were recovered, both with shotgun injuries that could not have been self-inflicted and with accelerant detected in various rooms of the manor that the murder-suicide theory was discounted by the police. Police were also initially looking to trace two unidentified vehicles, a motorbike and a 4x4 that was driven by a male described as fat by witnesses. Both were seen in the area at the time. Sorry to butt in. How have they cleared your one of... um the they couldn't set fire to their self, but not Patty and Griff. They but, said the wounds couldn't be self-inflicted. But no, you said think about the fire. It couldn't have accelerant. The, yeah, yeah, the accelerant. Mm-hmm. Sorry, but surely, because how can you set yourself on fire? I know you can, but mm. well, I suppose if it's a murder fetch. suicide, you'd like kill your brother, mm-hmm. put the paper around him, put the accelerant around the whole house, set fire to him, and shoot yourself. Yeah, it's easy to do. But with Griff, he set himself... The woman was shot, yeah. but he set himself on fire. Yeah, you can do that. Uh, I know somebody done it. Really? Mm, yeah. On purpose? Yeah. Fuck me. And I've read about people that do it. Okay. Yeah, if you're suicidal, mm. some people do do that. I know it's hard Jesus to understand, Christ. but it, it does happen. Right. Mm, it's pretty grim. Yeah, it's bad. You've got to really hate yourself, I think, to take Jesus, yeah. that way. The most painfulest way I can think oh, of. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. <clears throat> so they've obviously talked about this fat witness again who obviously cropped up they were mm-hmm. trying to get hold of him wasn't they so haunted by the violence of Cooper's killings rumour and half-truths meant that questions regarding Cooper's actions and motivations would periodically fly around the community for years after he was sentenced to life in prison in 2011 a lot of those rumours are little more than local hearsay but somewhere in this haystack of conjecture there are a few needles of truth that might point to a motive far darker than simple robbery. Gulf of Oil Refinery in Waterston was opened by Queen Elizabeth II in August 1968. The lavish opening ceremony gave away no clue about the troubles the refinery faced during construction. Just one year before it opened in the summer of 1967 work was proceeding at pace to finish the refinery not only did that involve huge chimneys and oil tanks it also involved railway links to uh, the nearby was it Hairbranston Junction about two and a half miles away that railway link was well behind schedule and was not completed until days before the opening ceremony 
Gulf had received permission in 1965 to compulsory purchase the land needed for the railway by an Act of Parliament, but work on the line was delayed due to land acquisition issues. Most local landowners welcomed the development for financial reasons and aided the project. However, they could, like renting a field out to the construction firm so they could build temporary base of operations. But from the very start, one landowner did not cooperate. The same landowner responsible for the land acquisition issues was so unhappy at the route of the train tracks that they even refused surveyors access to the proposed site of the railway via their land. That meant that early plans for the construction needed to use alternative spots such as Stainton Church Tower to start the surveys needed to plan the course of the railway. That refusal to access delayed work even further and forced the construction of a scaffold tower on adjacent land for the sole purpose of plotting the railway's course as planners were not given permission to step foot on any land that belonged to the annoyed party. So the only way they can do the survey is by building a scaffolding to look down because there's one man, one farmer, who's not having a drop of it. We'll give you three guesses who this farmer is. You got to think this is in the sixties. Yeah. This has been going on for years. Yeah. Angry at the construction of this railway just two hundred and fifty meters from his Scoverston Manor home, Richard Thomas made various demands of the construction, such as extra bridges needed to be constructed at short notice, in an effort to slow the work down and to cause as many setbacks as possible. Oh, he's a fucker, isn't he? <clears throat> yeah. He's a very tenacious pedantic man Naughty by the sounds of it. Yeah. Mr Thomas raised so many objections about the construction of the railway that the compulsory purchase deal had not been completed. No monies had been exchanged and the railway line was still in the ownership of Gulf and had not been taken over by British Rail at the time of Richard and Helen Thomas's <gasps> deaths at Christmas 1985. Some 20 years Jesus. after the compulsory purchase permission had been quite so 65 to 85 this is he's been dragging it out. Dragging it out. Richard and Helen Thomas were gunned down by John Cooper in what some believe to be a robbery gone wrong. After killing the Thomases, Cooper then moved the body of Richard onto the stairs of the manor from an outbuilding, covered areas of the building in paraffin and set the manor house ablaze. After the deaths of Richard and Helen Thomas, the Long Gulf Railway construction saga drew to a smooth close and the deal is believed to have been completed and money's transferred by the end of 1986. That's funny. One year after they died. Yeah, that is a bit suspect. I think so. Could Richard Thomas's behaviour towards the Gulf... The Gulf Railway construction have inspired someone to seek an alternative method to finally close the long, drawn-out process of completing the pulsory purchase of the land. It could very well just be a coincidence. We might never know for sure, but what we do know for sure is that John Cooper robbed at least 30 houses, brutally killed four people and sexually assaulted two young women. But how Cooper became a killer has never been satisfactorily explained. Which is true. He went from burglar Mm -hmm. to killer. Mm -hmm. Unless Um, he was doing it a lot more... That we they ain't picked up on. Yeah, which leaves gaps in the story, and these gaps are often filled with rumour, half-truths and make-believe. It's also important to rem- remember that local rumour also incorrectly labelled Richard Thomas as a homosexual for many years after his death because it was reported that semen was found in his anus during his post-mortem. That was when the rumours began to fly that a jilted ex-lover of Richard Thomas might have been responsible. Oh. So you know in... Crime Watch, they said mm-hmm. that he'd had sex that day. Yeah. That was based on the post-mortem. But oh. it wasn't until 2006 that the semen was subjected to DNA testing and it was discovered to be Richard Thomas's own semen, which was believed to have gotten there due to the injuries he received before and after his death. Because he was shot in the stomach. Oh. So it was a transfer of semen from wherever well, it usually lives because of the gunshot wound position. Back. Yeah. yeah, Yeah, exactly, exactly. Because so, I was just thinking, how did he stink his dinkle up his bum? But yeah, he didn't stink his dinkle up his bum, no. 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 Wow. <gasps> Mental, eh? That's fascinating. I mean, you just don't even know. And that golf place. Yeah. John Cooper used to work there. Yes. That's true. John Cooper had a job there. Do you think they paid him off to kill him? Well, I'm wondering if maybe somebody whispered in his ear, like, oh, do you know what? Uh, there's like mm-hmm. they've got a stash of money, yeah. you know, and maybe maybe they didn't know he'd kill them. Maybe they thought he'd scare them off. Yeah, because she was tied Threaten up. Them. He yeah. tied he tied her up. That yeah, that's true. That's terrifying. That would make somebody like give like think oh he's, so this I'm leaving. You know, he's paid to he's been paid I reckon to threaten them. I wouldn't be surprised. Give them a nudge mm. and it just went a bit out of hand. 
I Possibly. think he, he's got a bit feisty. Yeah. Um, Thomas, what's his name? The brother. Oh, um, Richard Thomas. Richard. Yeah. Richard's got a bit feisty, not backing <laughs> down because he seems mm. a bit cantankerous, doesn't yeah. he? He seems a bit narky. So I think he's thought, nah, fuck you, I ain't having this. Yeah. He worked he worked at the oil refinery as a welder's mate mm. um, a, for a year before he won that spot the ball. That's so So he worked there in 78 to 79, and, they, and obviously they died 10 years after that. Yeah. But he probably still, he, know, he knows he's familiar with it. And he's, he's most probably familiar because it's been going on for 10 years as yeah. well, the rail between the yeah. rail station. The dispute, yeah. the massive dispute that this yeah. farmer's causing, this huge corporation. Now I want to know, I'm, I'm curious to see if any of these had <laughs> anything part in the railway or their land to buy. Because mm. they all lived to, like the other... Oh, the other people. Yeah, I'm well, doing quotation yeah. marks, sorry. The other ones that he's meant to have killed. I'm yeah, wondering could be. if there's a tie anywhere else. There, you've yeah. got me going, ain't you? you I'll never be sitting know. Here, I'm researching. Mm. <laughs> So, can I finish with a bit of Kevin Bacon? Yeah, let's do it. I ain't done one in a very long time, so I thought, <laughs> why not? You know why I did it? Because I like Keith Allen. Oh. And he starred <laughs> in the Pembrokeshire Murders, which yep. was the ITV. Oh, I did have a fun fact that I didn't write. I don't know where it's gone. Um, Sorry, quickly. His son, the one he tormented, yeah. to stick one up to his dad, help write this programme, The Pembrokeshire Murders. Oh, that's good. Yeah. Mm. He said he had a squad to settle with his dad, so he decided to help the writers of The Pembrokeshire Murders as oh, a excellent. up yours to his dad. Oh, that's good. Yeah. Andy. Um, he also testified against his dad at the trial. Yeah. By a video link. So he's like, fuck you, motherfucker. Yeah. Just, so just he would, yeah, because the dad yeah. was trying to portray himself as the, I'm just a nice yeah. guy. So, yeah, they yeah. brought his son into... Bullshit. ...call bullshit on it, exactly. Yeah, so, sorry. So, Keith Allen starred in The Pembrokeshire Murders, and he was in a film called Scandal with Bridget Fonda, and she was in a film called Balto with Kevin Bacon. Got there in free. Yeah, that Scandal is um the Profumo affair. Christine Keeler. Yeah. That's what Scandal is, ah. yeah. Yeah. Good film. Yeah. So, yeah, I was quite pleased with that. Go on. I just like Keith Allen, and I? So. Yeah. Well, thank you for listening, lovely listeners. We hope you've enjoyed listening to mine and Lauren's theories and our investigation um, really stuff. Theories. Yeah. Thanks. Oh, I did really like <laughs> yeah. it. Well done. Well, I couldn't find huge amounts on um, John Cooper's early life. There was very little out there. I tried every avenue I could think mm-hmm. of. But I did find a conspiracy, so I thought, so I thought let's okay, let's do that. And so, yeah, I, I was just, I think when I first started looking into the brother and sister as well, I couldn't really find a lot about them. So I made it a mission just to find out. All it was just like brother and sister, farmer, shop. And I was thinking, no, I want to know more. Yeah. So I found out as much as I possibly could about yeah. them as well. So, yeah, but they were private people, so I couldn't get loads, but... Got some. You've done well. Yeah. Well done. done. Yeah, so... um, But anyway, yeah, thank you for listening. Hope you have a lovely week. Thank you. Take care, and we'll see you on the other side. See you later. Bye.